We're four teaching friends from across the country. Who've discovered that if you don't laugh, you cry and lose sight of your why. I'm Retta. I'm Deanne. I'm Tracy. And I'm Kathy. And we teach so hard. You know what's really hard? Culturally responsive teaching. That was a tongue twister. (laughs) Yes, it was. So January's almost here, teachers, and every January, classrooms across the United States complete Martin Luther King Jr. learning projects. They read picture book biographies. They listen to his I Have a Dream speech and get crafty with his image. Every elementary kid in America, if you say to that child, Martin Luther King, they're going to say back to you, I have a dream. Have a dream. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> what does it really mean? Yeah. What does it really mean? That's a good well, one. It means we it means we need to we need we need to look past that and maybe use it for an introduction, but dig a little deeper. For example, the I Have a Dream speech has never been considered by historians to be his best speech. It it, it was just um kind of a spur of the moment thing after the march to say that America has delivered a bad check to to the African-American people. And by the way, the elementary kids never even get to hear that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his mountaintop speech, for example, was, was much more powerful and interesting, that last speech that he ever made. Um, and then what about all the other figures in African-American history? What about all of the other historical figures in all of the cultures that make up our country? When does that well, happen? And, and that's the it thing. It should happen throughout the year. It should. That would be nice. And yeah. culturally responsive teaching doesn't necessarily even mean that you're only sharing stuff from, you know, a student's culture. It's not about the holidays and the food and, and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's something that's much deeper, much bigger, and much more complex. Sometimes right. I, not, I, yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's not necessarily International Day. <laughs> you know, where everyone yeah. just dresses up and brings their food. And yeah. it's, it, although that's things? fun. It is totally fun. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. But it is kind of a pet peeve of mine, too, that we only teach, you know, quote unquote, black history when it's February or when it's MLK Day or, you know, it shouldn't be a one time mention it's not it should but be you know our curriculum yeah or well, women's history only in march all, all of this should be responsive teaching isn't about teaching women's history or black history or it's it's much bigger than that and sometimes to understand something we've kind of got to look at at what it's not um right. it doesn't have yeah. to be race it i, I was to be cultural one thing that it is to me is holding up a mirror to your students. Mm-hmm. They need to see a purpose in what you're teaching. They need to see a little bit of themselves and their aspirations in mm-hmm. in what you're teaching. And um, you really got to get to know your own students. Yeah. That's and why it's, those it's tough. I didn't hear you. I know. I don't know what she said. <laughs> <I know. laughs> the storms are happening. Oh, I don't me? know. 
Yes. <laughs> I was going to say in um, you know middle school, it's really hard because the kids I'm teaching ancient history and they really like, why do I need to learn that? You know, how's that going to help me? Right. So we have to we have to discuss, you know, how you need to be well rounded and all this stuff, you know. And they eventually begin to realize. Do you know I got I got a message from my granddaughter a few days ago, actually, right before break, and and she said, "I'm really sick of European history. Oh, <laughs> when are we going to learn about something else?" And I, you know, I was like, "Well, I'm sure your teacher has it in the curriculum. You know, that it's, it's in the plan. It's coming." And and that's what's so great about college that you can go ahead and. She's in high school now. And it's, it's what, if you believe that I have a granddaughter in high school. Okay. Let's just pause for a minute. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, I said in college, you get to explore your own interests. And, uh, and then she came back and she says, well, it's not really that way. I guess I will learn about some other things. Well, you know, I was talking to my niece who's in Pennsylvania and she's a really kind of a creative kid and they're not allowing her to be creative. Uh, one of the activities that they did was they had to read a poem that somebody wrote and they had to act it out. And she said, I don't want to do that. I want to write my own poem, you know, so I could really relate to that. And um, it's sad. That's that's where project based learning. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but project based learning it, it is so powerful mm-hmm. for, you know, for being more culturally responsive, because each student can take that project and mold it to themselves. Well, and some right. of the misconceptions about um, some of the misconceptions about um, culturally responsive teaching, you know, you, it doesn't even have to mention race or culture. It's not a performance. So a lot of times teachers think, well, if I wrap this, you know, it's not it's not a performance to entertain and it's not about food and holidays and it's you don't even have to tie lessons into a student's cultural background. That's not even it's not even that. Um, it's it's like what what Retta said. It's holding that mirror up um, so that students can relate the lesson content to their own backgrounds. Right. That's key. It's huge. Yeah. So it all sounds good and it looks good on paper. So, but why do we do it? What's, what's the thought and the thinking behind culturally responsive teaching? So imagine yourself in a professional development session. We've all been there except that you're a classroom teacher and the session that you are in is all about best practices in music, PE and art classrooms, but you have to be at this session. And after the first 30 minutes, we can all relate to this because we've all been in sessions that we feel don't don't (laughs) apply to us. After the first 30 minutes, I don't know about you, but I begin to act out. I might pass notes to my colleagues, right? I doodle, I take a bathroom break. Sometimes I even plot an escape route to the nearest pot machine. And all I can I play do- with other people's cell phones and decide if I want to change mine. Yes. <laughs> I, I want a Coke. I want a coffee. By noon, sometimes I want a shot of tequila. Why? <laughs> because none of it feels relevant to me. And right. loosely speaking, it's not culturally responsive responsive. Because it's an, it's geared to a culture of a specials teacher, not a classroom teacher, right? 
you know, I do have to add one thing in here. And and I guess this is encouraging uh, negative behavior in your students. But I've done some of my best creative work during workshops like that. I remember going once to a portfolio session that was supposed to be geared, you know, to portfolio collection. It sounded very interesting to me. We had to go, but it's, it's, it sounded interesting. And it was all about data, 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 data. And this was in the days before you had to do all of this data collection that, that we do now. And I was sufficiently bored that I developed a whole new kind of portfolio and anybody who's ever been in my class will know it's called the mask book. And I wrote the plan and the sketches for it that day during that session. But totally tuning out the presenter and tuning out the learning. I just went exactly. on my because it wasn't relevant so, to you. Right. So it wasn't relevant. relevant. Yeah, so exactly. Now imagine then what our students go through. They're a student in a classroom and they're wondering, why is, what's this lesson have anything to do with me or yes. my experience? Yes. You know, um, any so what would you do as a teacher if a student did open their notebook and start sketching out something they did want to work on? How well, would let's you respond talk about to that? that because culturally responsive yeah. teaching is important because if you're being a culturally responsive teacher, it allows room for the students' experiences and realities in the classroom. It's it's huge. Is if you make their voice the center, then they're going to do what makes sense. And you, I like to think of it as a balance between loose and tight, right? You've got the mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. you can be loose about and you've got the things that you have to be tight about. Our standards, our standards are our tights. How we get there and how we assess it, those, some of those. But wouldn't you want to have a peek at that notebook with that student at a conference later and say, how can we make this work so that you can still meet that standard that I've got to worry about with you, but make this learning meaningful for you? Oh, absolutely. It's really but that's, good idea. so interesting. That's part of how you, how you flip it, right? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, go ahead, Dan. I was, I was just going to say, it's just really sad uh, nowadays that there are so many things that that are expected of kids and, and it's not valid for them. You know, they see no reason in studying or even going to school. And we really do need to change things. The education system needs to change things, you know? Well, but even deeper than that, we are the people who are primarily responsible for what happens in our classroom. And so flipping that, yes, there's always going to be standards. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be hoops to jump through. There's always going to be what there is, but but we have to take the responsibility of that as a teacher to make things student-centered as much as possible. Here right. goes PBL. Yeah, and I try to give options for the kids on how to how convey their understanding of information. Mm -hmm. So rather than have all students do things the same way, you right. know, they can even bring, they can even bring suggestions to me. Can I do it this way? Mm -hmm. um, which so great. You know, it really builds on their strengths too. But I was laughing as you were talking about, uh, Retta, as you were talking about doodling, because I have a little boy this year who is constantly doodling and doodling oh, as in um, making comic strips. Yeah. But the hilarious, the yeah. hilarious thing is I don't make a big deal of it, but afterwards I always go over to see what it was he was doing. And oh, of course. The comic strips are often about the lesson yeah. Uh, not 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 his note taking, but just hilarious things he must have been thinking in his head. He then is like talking back to the paper, and 
And you know, like he, he, his mind is processing while he's doing this. Yeah. It's, I that love is, that. That is the coolest thing. And you know what, guys? It's, it's, as I was like reading research on culturally responsive teaching, the thing that came up out the most to me was it's, it's good practice. It's best practice. It's differentiation at its finest. Yes. This differentiation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so much of what, what we love. I know the four of us, the four, we've gotten to know each other really well. I, I wish I could teach with all of you all at once. Yes, We'd have a blast. Yes, That'd be great. <laughs> so much of it though, is what we love to do as teachers, what the four of us love to do as teachers. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. How do we establish norms and classroom practices that support culturally responsive teaching? What does that look like? Well, we do want our students to be engaged and to feel and see that learning is relevant to their lives and experiences. And uh, we want to figure out what classroom norms we can put in place for our students' success and motivation. And um, one of the things is to share the ownership of knowing with all the students, you know, let them voice their opinions, see what they know, and go from there. Yeah. And the minute I think you open it up and you make it more about the students thinking than about the specific knowledge, I think that you've just given them ownership, right? You mm-hmm. and, and raising my exactly. hand over here yeah. for that little person in your room who wants to participate in that way, but just doesn't have any ideas. What I love to do is put a page right inside their um, interactive notebook or whatever kind of uh, note-taking device you have for your particular course. And it's a menu of possible ways to respond. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. You know, like you could respond in a poem. You could respond with a picture or a diagram. You could respond by making a skit and getting other kids to act in it. Mm -hmm. And just start with a basic menu of some ideas off the top of your own head. Or I can give you some ideas if you ask me. Reddit.london at gmail.com. Anyway. But um, but then generate some other ideas with with your kids. How would you like to respond to mm-hmm. a particular lesson that we've had to show that you understand it to yes. demonstrate to demonstrate your understanding? And, well, and that, that menu is oh, it, it's just a great place for the kid who doesn't know where to start to start and then build from mm-hmm. there. I also think like I think back to like the the stuff I've done with visible thinking and and reading Ron Richards and uh, Mark Church's work about um, making sure that kids understand that the learning that they're doing is connected to the real world so that when we do science, we're thinking and writing and reading like scientists. And when we yes. do math, we're thinking and writing and learning like mathematicians and so that they see that this is this is what the real world is right mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. thinking that we're doing i think that yes. that's a game changer definitely i think role playing is 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 very helpful in this also yeah from their perspective oh absolutely yes, absolutely modeling of that mm-hmm. yeah mhm you know, one of my favorite ways, um, I always do this thing with um, 
we read Long Walk to Water in my fifth grade classroom and, and we, we research water. They think about questions and things that they want to talk about around water. And it can be any question. We brainstormed. Last year, I think we brainstormed 50 questions they had about water. Some of them were science-based. Some of them were sociologically based, economics. Um, and so we did a research thing around this and they presented their research to each other. And it was great. It was so much fun. And then we, we talked about water in terms of the Flint water crisis. And then you know, I was just going to ask that when you said water, yeah. I was going to say, why doesn't Flint still have clean water? Well, exactly. Yeah. And then we went into the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, and it was a, it was it was a graphic I found. And if you go on to Newzella, they actually have a um, you know you can level the Lexile, and 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 there it is in words that my kids can understand. And do you know that water? Clean, safe drinking water is not on their list of human rights. And so, really? No, it's not. And so my kids decided wow. they needed to petition the United Nations and that they were going to write letters. And so th that is a way to take a learning experience. And sometimes if you just sit back and you follow your kids, they take mm -hmm. you to the coolest places. And then there's that story, and you probably could find it in News ELA or News L or whatever you use, Scholastic News. Um, there's that, that little boy in Africa who discovered a way to purify water for his village. Mm -hmm. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. Yes. And, you know, and it's stories like that, that that they can discover. And then the, the kids in your room who are more of a, the makers, the hands-on, People can think of solutions that aren't about writing or petitioning, but maybe about doing and making and inventing mm -hmm. and, you know, just all different ways to hold up that mirror. Well, and it yeah. sounds just from listening to everyone, too, that just so much of our responsive teaching period really lends itself to project-based learning. I mean, all of it is so connected, right? Because mm -hmm. we are taking what it the is. kids need. Right. And yep. that's the learning right there. Absolutely. I was just thinking STEAM and STEM. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. So that you kind of are segueing into that, Kathy. What does that look like in terms of learning activities? We know what it is. We know what it's not. We know why to do it. But what does that look like in terms of learning activities? Oh, I feel like I'm in a movie I from that. Know. <laughs> oh, no. Do you know, just just as you you turned that music on, I got this visual. We had this fabulous music teacher. We've had so many fabulous music teachers over the years. I could give you a whole list. Just amazing. And this woman was doing a thing with first graders about water with scarves, all different kinds of scarves, and they were like composing their own music and making up their own dances. And it was all, do you know that? Cause Tracy, you used to be a music teacher. Is that something they just do? Or was that her? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I've done stuff like that before, but I'm not sure. What oh, it's a colored scarves. I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, those kids who are musical could, you know, could make up an interpretive dance and answer that way. And, 
you know, there are always there are all these jokes out there on the internet. Like, could I show you my answer by through interpretive dance? Right. <laughs> well, when it comes well, to culturally, not? when it comes to culturally <laughs> responsive teaching, the key is student centered, right? The more yes. student centered, the better. It values student voices, um, cooperative learning, mm-hmm. peer teaching. I mean, the kids really are the center of it, and the responsive part is responding to our kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Taking away the performance and adding in the responsive, the responsivity. Yep. You know, I can always tell like when, when something hasn't gone well in my classroom or gone well with my teaching or the kids seem disengaged, if I take a minute and it happens every time (laughs) I take a minute and I step back, it's because my voice has been the dominant voice every time, Mm -hmm. every time. Yeah. It's a good reflective piece. If you're doing most of the talking, there's a problem. Right. Yeah. The person Definitely. who's talking is usually the one learning the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. It's true. Because you can just sit there and just let it wash over you for 40 minutes or however long it is. And, you know, if you don't get to participate, it, it isn't responding to your needs or well, your learning style or anything. The other thing about responding, though, is sometimes I think we get so excited about what our students want to do or, you know, that we almost lose track so or get off topic. So we really need to make sure our learning goals are clear mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, with and make sure that we have clear criteria and just, you know, we have our end standards that we have to teach, but we can get there however we want. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes I know for myself, I'll get super excited if students want to go a different path, but then I have to make sure I keep bringing it back to, oh, but what was our end goal? Yeah. <laughs> right? So <laughs> right. And they still have to identify the standards and they still have to identify what pieces are in the lesson. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in turn, make sure that that is included in their response. And I think what's it's really not like a free for all where you're just writing a song or, mm-hmm. you know, making a picture. Deanne, what were you saying? It's got to go back to. Well, I was just going to say, I think uh, critical questioning, you know, for the kids and guided reciprocal peer questioning, you know, problems and problem solving investigations and all that is, is really a great way to do it. Um, and simulations, especially art, you know, and just let their creativity flow through. I love simulations. Simulations make me I happy. I do too. I do too. Those are great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After teaching social studies that way, it's hard to go back. I wouldn't want to go back. It's it's just no, a no. great way for kids to experience things through their lens. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. exciting. So ladies. It is exciting. We are. We've talked about culturally responsive teaching. What's your number one? If you had to give your number one culturally responsive strategy what would it be? I'm going to go back a little bit to um, uh, Black History Month. I would uh, show the kids. Uh, oh boy, now it just just left me. It's about Stephen Biko. Um, I forget that. A Cry Freedom. I don't know if you've if any of you have seen that. It's a I wonderful movie, but it's yeah. yeah, it's so hard to watch. But anyway, then they would do a writing project, and I would have them. One of the activities would be to place themselves in like either the kids in the in the ghettos, um, 
Stephen Biko, I, I forget the reporter's name, and and write the story from their from their perspective. And then I would show them the actual pictures of what was really going on. And, you know, that would bring it back to the reality of, of what was happening in today's world. And they, they really loved this activity. And um, mm. the papers that they wrote were, were phenomenal. How I'll have to look that, that up. I'll have to watch that. Yeah. It's really, really good. How about- it might be, it might be, it's, it's hard to watch, you know, because there's, it's, it's very sad. You know, it's, it's tough. So I think the kids probably need to be a little bit older, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's a wonderful movie. It really is. There's one that that um, could work with um, fourth and fifth graders. It's called Brother Future. It's been out for a while, and it's about a kid who who time travels. He ends up he he's kind of he's African American, but he's not really um, he's not on a good path. And he time travels back to slavery, and he sees um, what his ancestors went through and what they fought hard for for some of the privilege oh, that he wow. in that mm. day. And that's, that's one that would be really geared well toward for fourth and fifth grade students. Um, if the other one is too heavy content wise in terms of point right. of view, you know, there's, there's, there's one more. And, and unfortunately I forgot the name of that one too, but it's about <laughs> a boy and a, <laughs> isn't that's terrible, but they switch places. I, I believe it's a, um, a white girl goes to Africa and lives with, I, I think the black person's family and the black person comes to the United States and lives with their family. And you can see the prejudices coming through and everything. It's, it's, and, and the end is, is wonderful. I mean, they begin to relate to each other and uh, it's, it's just a really, really good movie. And I wish I could remember the name of it. Is that familiar to anyone? No, I, I don't know. Oh man. One, one technique that I love to use is improv. Just like you learn, you know, when you're taking mm-hmm. acting lessons that you get a situation that's derived from your lesson. Um, you get a character to play who might be someone um, involved. If it's a, something out of history, could be a historical character, could be just someone who would happen to be on the scene. Um, so you have your situation, you have your character, and you have your mood, and you have different kinds of moods that go in there. Mm. And kids love doing this. They just randomly choose cards and, um, you know, get up – we start off doing it a whole group, three at a time. And, you know, and they get up there and they act out scenes. And in doing that, give you back the information that you're hoping that, you know, that they got out of the lesson it, it, you know, in their own way. Sounds great. So I'm working on some improvs now from um, a book about a nat- natural disaster. It's called Ninth Ward, and it's about Hurricane Katrina. Hmm. And what struck me was how the main character in this book dealt with the disaster. She de- she dealt with some dealt with it in ways that were unique to where she lived and where she grew up and how she was raised. And part of it was magical thinking, and th- that just intrigued me. And I just wondered what what do kids think about magical thinking, and you know, and how would they react in a situation like that? What that was a strategy she used to survive. Mm-hmm. What would be your survival strategy? So it, it, I'm rambling. That's just one thing. Okay, so my number one culturally responsive strategy. <laughs> Thank you. Is, is I in my read well, a couple things, but in my read alouds, I really try to choose. Um, Characters that reflect my kids. So whether it, you know, whether it be culturally, whether it be 
gender, whether it be attributes, um, but something that that they can connect mm-hmm. to because I want that responsive piece of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, throughout the year, not just focusing on one month per culture type of thing, mm-hmm. but really trying to use history in our social studies. I mean, everything, um, trying to focus on qualities of people and how they can and how the kids can relate to it. That's awesome. I think one of my favorite strategies is um, it's a visible thinking strategy. It's called circle of viewpoints. And so. Um, Yeah. Yeah, And so um, you put a circle on some butcher paper and you put, you divide it up into pie pieces according to how many kids you, you have in the, I usually do like three or four and you put the issue in the center or the question or whatever. And they, they put their viewpoint about that issue or that theme or that question. In fact, I'm using it, um, getting ready to do podcasting with my students and, And, you know, one of the things that they wanted to talk about was safety in schools. This was something they wanted to discuss. So we did circle the viewpoint so that they could get their thinking down. And then they look and they examine the differences in their thinking and they talk about why those differences exist and, um, you know, why they have the opinions that they have. And that kind of helps us identify for what we're what's coming next, our main idea and supporting details about what they're going to record. But um, the circle of viewpoints is a fantastic way to shine a light on the student thinking and have them examine each other's um, points of view. And And that it's written down. So they're actually looking at the words versus like, there's no emotion there, right? Right. It's just here's stated. I like that. Right. So that's all we have time for today. We hope that you enjoyed this. Um, this was a really heavy one for us, but we felt very strongly that we, this issue, we wanted to talk about culturally responsive teaching with you. Uh, we hope that you'll join us next week. Our new discussion, we're going to be tackling what happens when your classroom management needs tweaking.